Welcome back to another episode of Courtside. Currently right now, I just finished watching the Knicks Heat game five. Glad New York figured out ball movement was a thing again. I was really missing New York ball movement since the regular season. But, finished that. Now I'm watching game five of this Warriors-Lakers. So that's going on. Things just start the second quarter. So, there's a lot to talk about today. First team, second team, and third team. All NBA teams were announced today. And actually, a lot of awards I haven't been able to get onto for this podcast uh, just because of kind of my schedule. You know, got back in my place here in North Florida. So I'm going to go into that. And, of course, all around the second round of the playoffs, a lot of things I talk about. Is the Celtics done? What about Denver? What's going on in Denver? Can they really close it out against Kevin Durant and finish off Devin Booker's insane run in the playoffs? I'll talk about that and more on this episode of Courtside. This episode of the Courtside Podcast is brought to you by YouTube channels Highway Temptation and Captain Barbo, who make content on YouTube weekly. If you're looking to kind of, you know, just sit down, find yourself with a little meal for lunch, and you want at least 20 minutes, maybe even half your half your lunch break, 30 minutes, there's some really good videos if you're interested on Captain Barbo's channel. He did like a God of War series, Castle Crashers recently, and if you're into Dark Soul games, I mean, he's got plenty of options for you. It's a laugh every single second, every single minute. So definitely check out his channel. And for Highway Temptation, for Sonic fans out there, they're ranking every single Sonic. So don't forget to look at those two channels and their series that they have going on. And of course, follow the podcast. So I'm going to go straight into the All-NBA teams before I go into any bit of rookie or anything like that in the playoffs. Because there's been a lot of conversation, I think more or less on Twitter. Just the initial responses. How did this player not make it? Does this player get snubbed out of an all-NBA team? Which there were a couple of players that were kind of head-scratchers, but these are pretty accurate. I'm going to go straight through them. Also, if my voice sounds a little bit low right now, it's like almost what was it, 11 o'clock right now. I got people sleeping in the place I'm in right now, so trying to keep it quiet for this podcast, not going to lie to you. But let's go to third team here. For all-NBA third team, De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis, two kings, all-NBA, well-deserved, of course. They're joined by Julius Randle, who makes an all-NBA team, I believe, if not the first time, the second time in his career. I got to double-check on that stat. Uh, But also, kind of a shock, LeBron James and Demi Lillard. I thought Lillard at least second team, at least... The season he's kind of had in the middle of the year, he had like back-to-back 40-point games or something like that. Kind of shocking. I'm not going to lie to you. Kind of shocking. But then again, he gets all NBA and he's deserving of it. Then we go to the second team. This is where it gets a little questionable. Jimmy Butler, Donovan Mitchell, Jalen Brown. Right? Those are three that I think you can say they're not first. Definitely not first. But they're definitely all NBA. But then the other two, Stephen Curry and Nikola Jokic. Jokic, who was second in MVP voting, let alone probably was, I'm not going to say was the MVP, but there's a lot of people you can argue. It's a 50-50 between him and Joel Embiid, who Joel Embiid did end up winning MVP for probably something that he should have won three years ago. But Jokic second? I don't agree with it. And especially after you're hearing the first team. Giannis Antetokounmpo, Luka Doncic, Joel Embiid, the MVP of this year, Shai Gildas Alexander from OKC getting his first ever 
first team nod and Jason Tatum, who, of course, was one of the top five players in this regular season. That was an MVP contention. But, man, I mean, I know that they're not going to be having the positionless all-NBA team selections until, I believe, next year or something like that. But for Shy to be there, I mean, phenomenal season. I think he really, you know, took leaps over bounds of what people were expecting out of him, and especially of the Thunder this year. But, man, first team over Curry, over Jokic, let alone... Giannis Antetokounmpo, I get it. Best player, probably see on the court in a long time. But the two best play, and again, I don't know. I'm not going to like bash people's opinion on basketball, but if you think that Jokic was less of a less of a better player this season specifically than Giannis, I don't know what you're talking about. I really don't know what you're talking about. I think Jokic, he was probably overall offensively defensively his passing game is a facilitating let alone his size and everything in the middle of it i mean just because he's not athletic doesn't mean i mean that's the only thing he's missing in some points athleticism offensive and on the defensive end but he opens everything for the game he is a first team player over Giannis Antetokounmpo Giannis who phenomenal regular season Milwaukee one of the best teams had the best record throughout the entire eastern conference top 5 defensive team with Giannis leading the way in exit Drew Holiday and Defensive Player of the Year finalist Brooke Lopez. But man, really. And Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic didn't even make the play-in. And not saying this because of his own play regress. It was more or less the team. And honestly, ever since the Kyrie Irving trade happened, you know, you thought things were looking great the first week and then it kind of just went downhill. But Jokic, he could have replaced either of those guys. Either of those guys. And honestly, I think Shy have all of them. Because what, Luka, Giannis, Jason Tatum, Joel Embiid, four of them were at least in the top five in MVP voting. Jokic was the only one missing out of that first team that was a part of the MVP voting, let alone was second in MVP voting. It's crazy. But again, not bashing in any players. Congratulations to Shy, Tatum, Joel Embiid, of course, won the MVP. Luca, who ended up leaving with something out of this season uh, after missing not only the playoffs but also the play-in, and Giannis Antetokounmpo for getting first-team All-NBA. So good for them. I'll put it. I'll leave it at that. Good for them. Very questionable, though. I would say didn't really like it. But also, I think because I also need to talk about All-Defensive Team because I did mention uh, Brooke Lopez, the first-team All-Defense. It kind of shocked. Like I like the roster. Of Jaron Jackson Jr., who ended up becoming Defensive Player of the Year, alongside Brooke Lopez, Evan Mobley, and Drew Holiday. But Alex Caruso? I mean, for me personally, I haven't watched too many Bulls games, but I didn't expect Alex Caruso to be on this list over, you know, guys like Derek White. You know what I mean? Let alone Bam Adebayo. Bam Adebayo for the second time straight second team All-NBA or whatever in defense. Actually, I think last year he was third team, which is still crazy to me. I mean, not saying that Bam Adebayo is going to be, you know, snubbed, Defensive Player of the Year, this and that. But, you know, you got to recognize it when it is there. I mean, Bam Adebayo is definitely, you know, elevating his game more and more, especially on isolation situations. But, man, Derek White, second team, all defense, below Caruso? Come on. I don't know about that one. I really don't know about that one. I mean, Derek White even 
uplift himself over Marcus Smart as kind of the defensive guard on the Celtics, in my opinion. Which is, like, who does that? Who can do that in today's NBA against Marcus Smart? Three-time Hustle Award winner. But speaking of which, I think it's the perfect time now to kind of jump into some second-round playoff series. And so we're talking about Celtics, Derek White, and Marcus Smart. Why not talk about what is going on in Boston? What's going on in Boston is a dismantling of confidence off of two buzzer-beating wins off of James Harden's left hand and 40-point performances. It dismantled them all the way to Game 5, back to TD Garden. And, I mean, I don't know exactly what's going on with the Celtics, because it's not Joe Mazzulla. People think it's Joe Mazzulla. You know, he has a timeout at the end of regulation game four, this and that. I don't believe it's Joe Mazzulla because they're getting the looks. They're moving the ball well. I mean, Tatum, I mean, for example, Tatum in game four. He had about, what, four looks open from three. He was missing the first eight, first nine shots. Then he finally got hot in the second half. That's where the Celtics kind of built up. And actually, from being down close to 20 points, they ended up almost winning that game in game four they were this close an inch close to a 3-1 series lead but they go to overtime and you have James Harden knocking down a buzzer beater because Jalen Brown thinks it's a smart idea to double team when you're up two with seconds remaining let alone not a shot clock even to worry about with seconds remaining because Joel Embiid has the ball inside I'm sorry I can go to two overtimes four overtimes in that situation I do not want to give up a three Especially to a guy at the time who had a 30-piece plus game. No way. But the Celtics, I mentioned before, confidence, they just kind of, you know, they've been getting killed. And I think one of the biggest things is the top of the perimeter, the pick and rolls, is just killing the Celtics defensively. Like, the Celtics defensively, from the rotations of Grant Williams, Robert Williams, who has been kind of, I mean, invisible throughout this entire series, in my opinion. I, I think either that be... Minutes reason wise for Joe Mazzulla not putting on the floor, whether that be because they want Al Horford's offense, even though Al has been what I mean, the other game, I don't think he had a single basket as I pull up the stats for game five. But man, I'm seeing Al Horford, he used to step up after the screen. They go under the screen, you step up in front of it, you keep the guy at the perimeter towards the baseline on the elbow. James Harden off the screen is taking himself inside onto Al Horford, inside onto Grant Williams. He's going inside every single time with these easy floaters, you know, little back and forth, you know, pop a little bit for a fadeaway. It's too easy. It's way too easy. And the crazy thing about it, it's effect, and you just see it's the confidence level throughout the entire game of Game 5. For those who do not know, um, Celtics, who are up 2-1 in the series after Game 3, are now down 3-2 in a similar situation to last year's second round that the Celtics had against the Milwaukee Bucks. So, game five, Sixers took it 115 to 103, but the game was over by the second quarter. That's how bad it looked like. Celtics offense couldn't really do anything. They got on a 10 all run, but everything was matched with either Tyrese Maxey, who, believe it or not, for Philadelphia, led the team in scoring with 30, oh my apologies, not second in the team leading in scoring. Uh, he ended up finishing with 30 points while Embiid led the team with 33. Uh, but either way, though, they were able to get every single shot that they wanted. They went through the Celtics defense like Swiss cheese. And half of the time, they're just standing there. Boston's just standing there. 
what's the future now for the Boston Celtics, who are going into Game 5 as the favorite to win everything in this championship? Well, you go to Philadelphia, Game 6, hostile environment. Now you know that Tyrese Maxey is back into the series. You know that Joel Embiid is going to give you 30 a game from the looks of it because he has been doing it ever since Game 2. Maybe you find an answer for James Harden, but now you have other pieces where the bench is going to be an issue now. Tobias Harris has been phenomenal. Then you also got guys such as House Jr., which is crazy to even think about. House being an issue off the bench for the Boston Celtics alongside Nang. But, man, they haven't played Harrell. They haven't really played... I think they played Milton like seconds. He was almost a DMP player in Game 5. And he didn't even feel like he even needed to be on the floor that night. So, Game 6... Defensively, Celtics need to step up on the perimeter, step up on the actual play defense, actually, off the screen. Whether that be, you know, instead of going over the screen and just having Al Horford, instead of doing that switch, just follow Joel Embiid or another big man, Reed, for example, down into the paint. While you have maybe Jalen Brown kind of going back and forth. But step up the defense is one thing. Watch out for the pick and rolls and get some confidence in your offense. Now, I don't know if Boston is going to find this confidence in the recent, you know, with the whole thing about the uh, all-NBA teams, which I was talking about earlier in this podcast. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, because they got all-NBA teams this season, they are now eligible for more than $290 million extensions for themselves. Jalen Brown can sign for a 200 million. 95 million after this season in the offseason of 2023 and Jason Tatum could do a similar contract for himself as well in next season of 2024 which basically means the Boston Celtics and yes this would mean that both young superstars Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown will stay with the Celtics for almost five to six years more but Boston would have to pay half a billion dollars just to do it half a billion two players is it worth it? I'm not too positive. And then again, I know I'm getting a little bit off track about this series and I'm talking more about Boston than Philadelphia right now, but is it really worth it? Half a billion dollars for two players? I don't know. For Jason Tatum himself, we're looking at a contract that could potentially eclipse what we see right now with Giannis Antetokounmpo, who I think has the biggest contract in the NBA, if not Bradley Beal, which is a kind of a random stat. But... Is it worth it? I think it's worth it. You talk about two superstar guys that, you know, ever since they've been in the league, they've been developing better and better and better. And so has the cast around them. I mean, last season went to the NBA Finals. You know, years prior, they were just struggling to get out of the Eastern Conference, let alone get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Is it worth it? Of course it is. The only question I have is, like, who else stays after that? Does Marcus Smart stay? Al Horford stay? And these questions, I mean, this is obviously going to be on Brad Stevens' head more than anybody else in that locker room. But Joe Mazzulla and the team for the Boston Celtics, they got to focus on game six and seven. And the only way they can be able to do that is get back on their offense. I think it's just really the offense. The offense, it builds into the confidence on defense. And of course, defense turns to lackluster when you're basically giving up back-to-back possessions on offense where you're just missing open shots. I mean, I've seen it not for the Celtics, but also other teams, like New York in Game 3. 
how many shots did they miss? And the Heat just ended up going quick transition offense to get another two easy baskets. Back and forth, back and forth. It happens a lot, especially in the playoffs where momentum switches like crazy. Which also kind of gives you an answer for Game 2 and 3 for the Warriors-Lakers series, which I'll go into later in the podcast. I want to stay on the East Coast. But for the Celtics, I still think they can get it out. I mean, nothing's really impossible. I mean, Jason Tatum scored 46 in Game 6 last year in the second round. And actually, Tatum and Brown, they showed up in Game 5. It wasn't, it wasn't at all the Jays, the big-time players for Boston. Jason Tatum in Game 5, 36 points, 10 rebounds. Jalen Brown, 24 points, 6 rebounds. Both players, actually JB had a better night shooting overall from the floor, had like 56 clip and then team out of 40. But as I mentioned before, Al Horford, ever since game three he struggled, zero points in this one. And the worst part about it, his shot selection, I don't know if this is just because of Joe Mazzulla's offense and the reason why I'm guessing that Joe has him over Rob in minutes is just because of his experience and also his shooting ability. But 0-7 from the floor, 0-7 from three. If you're missing seven shots throughout the game in one location, maybe you try to change a little bit. I mean, I know his shot bar graph or whatever statistic you want to call it probably shows that, yeah, he's a better pick-and-pop player than he is going in the post against some guys like Joel Embiid. But come on, man. Give me a little mid-range. Give me a little, you know, last destination stuff where you have Al Horford kind of posting away, fadeaway hook shot here and there. He can do it. It's not a question that he can or not. It's just... Why isn't he doing it? That's what I want to know. But Al Horford, zero points. Marcus Smart and Derek White, which Derek White, I think, has kind of disappeared after the second game of the Atlanta series in the first round. Derek White had seven points. Smart, 14. Didn't even get close to 30%. He had like 28% from the floor shooting. It was a bad, terrible, terrible game offensively for them. And the worst part about it, the bench was even more of a laughing stock. And this does even bring... Actually, I think the game, in the sense of what the Celtics did with the bench and the rotations late in the game, it does bring in more questions for Game 6, just because maybe you might see Payne Pritchard now. I mean, Payne Pritchard, through 9 minutes, had 8 points. Those 8 points alone was enough to lead the bench in scoring. Through 9 minutes. Malcolm Brogdon, the 6th man of the year, locked down. Seven points, three and nine from the floor shooting. He only had two attempts from three. And again, this is Malcolm Brogdon, who is a really efficient shooter from three. I think got to be a top five guy so far in these playoffs in a sense of efficiency. But yeah, Celtics defensively, they just, they kind of collapse right below and beside their offense. Now, what happens in game six and seven? Only time will tell. You know, being that of Thursday at 7.30 p.m., maybe we get... Mark Jones and Doris Burke on the call again for ESPN for, what, the third time in this series? I, I really, I don't know. And plus, not even that, no offense, because Mark Jones, lovely guy, is a broadcaster, South Florida guy, you know, always got to represent. But at the same time, him and Doris Burke, I mean, they just, they give so much credit to Joel Embiid, and for good reason, of course, he's the MVP. But man, every single time I watch an ESPN broadcast, and there's also the question of, do you prefer ESPN over TNT? I prefer TNT right now. I mean, I think ESPN is really good. And, you know, they got a couple of things they got to fix themselves. If they put me on there, I'm not saying I'm pitching on a job, but if they put me on there, I might get, you know, a little creative. Something that they might need. A little first take kind of finesse to it. 
but it's going to be for Celtic fans if the Celtics are down by a lot early it's going to be a hard listen to the Celtic fans so for those Celtic fans that are listening look out because you might want to listen to that TV with a really low volume uh, but let's stay in the Eastern Conference huh I just finished watching the Miami Heat and Knicks game for Game 5, and wow, I thought the Knicks were kind of dead in the water after Game 4. They just looked terrible through Game 3 and 4 in Miami. And for, you know, these analysts talking about, oh, the weather in Miami was probably the issue. It's just the heat and the humidity and all that stuff. What are we talking about there? You got teams like... I mean, it doesn't even matter where it is at. Like, half of the league is in a hot climate. Have you been to Los Angeles? Have you been to New Orleans? Have you been to San Antonio? Half of the league is in a hot climate. I mean, shoot. I mean, in the Western Conference in some places, you'll probably get a nosebleed after 20 minutes in the dry dirt grass. I kid you not. That climate stuff is no... I mean, again, it's no joke if you're the Miami Dolphins... You know, going against the New York Jets. But, come on, this is a Miami Heat playing in whatever that building is called now. They have changed that name like three times. I, I'm still going to call it the AAA because I, that's what I grew up with. But the Miami Heat taking games three and four. Number three in blowout fashion. Super dominant game for Miami. A fast-paced offense. Kevin Love, who was just making... He's been making these outlet passes, man. I wish if he wasn't on the Cavaliers and we just got a full-blown career of Kevin Love outlet passes and some crazy stuff, you know, I would definitely love to see that because Kevin Love has been the deciding factor for Miami throughout these playoffs. Winning regular in the playoffs and, I mean, what is he only lost, like, a game or two in the postseason? Both of them in the Knicks series, too, so. Uh, but with that being said, uh, one of those losses with Kevin Love starting, the Game 5 of New York versus Miami in MSG Madison Square Garden. In a sense of basketball-wise, as of watching the game, that was probably the best game of this series. New York winning it out 112-103 to over Miami in a elimination game that probably would have sent Miami to the Eastern Conference Finals for the second time straight, which is crazy to say for an eighth seed now. But the New York Knicks salvaged their season to live another day and... Looking at the stats itself, you wouldn't believe it from New York. Jalen Brunson. And funny enough, not only Jalen Brunson, but also Quentin Grimes. Both guards played 48 minutes in this game. They played the entire game. I mean, I get Jalen Brunson, who is basically, you know, the gas for this team trying to tread through this Miami squad. But man, Quentin Grimes? <laughs> he had only had eight points. And shot three and eight, but then again, you know, late in the game, how are you going to be efficient shooting? You know what I mean? There's no way. He was also two and six from three, but I mean, he did his job. He did his job defensively. Uh, but Jalen Brunson, though, he has such an engine in him that's ridiculous. I mean, especially afterwards on the TNT broadcast when he was doing like the interview, answering the questions. I mean, he even looked still locked in going into the media. That's insane. Jalen Brunson, 38 points. 9 rebounds, 7 assists, shot 12 of 22 shots. 12 of 22, that's a 54 and a half clip. Shooting from the floor. Insane, but again, Jalen Brunson played the entire game, but he wasn't alone though. 
right behind him in minutes, uh, Julius Randle, as well as R.J. Barrett. Julius, who went through 35 and a half minutes, 24 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. And he was going at it in the beginning of the game. I think he got the first basket for New York, a three-pointer from the top of the key. He was phenomenal. It was definitely a Julius Randle game where he actually, instead of... And the type of player that Julius, I see him to be, is that when you know it gets tough, he keeps on shooting, which kind of harms the team. But today, it looked like he opened and he waited for the play to actually you know, advance itself to open up, to find open guys. He actually helped move the ball. Like, the Knicks moved the ball, which is something you love to see in New York because that's kind of the reason why they won in the 70s, those two titles. And, I mean, again, 50 years ago, but it, that that's just New York basketball. When they move the ball, you really can't stop that team. And it helps out everyone. As I mentioned before, Randall, 24 points. R.J. Barrett. 26 points through just about 38 minutes of play, 7 rebounds, 2 assists, 47%. So that's a not like the most accurate, but it's a pretty decent night shooting from the floor, especially if you're shooting more than 15 shots. And the bench itself, the bench was the only thing that I think kind of lacked behind. Uh, Miami's bench, I think at one point in the game, had like 46 compared to New York's 6 points off the bench. Insane stat. But from the bench... The only person I would give credit in this game, uh, Josh Hart, who has just been really declining his play in the past three games. Uh, so Coach Thib has only played him for nine minutes. They even break 10-minute marks through this game. Uh, but, you know, Toppin didn't do much. Hart didn't do much. McBride played 30 seconds, if you want to even count that. Uh, but Hardenstein, though, what a great guy to go in that. Like, just to go inside to get offensive rebounds. Uh, he ended up having four himself out of the six rebounds he had throughout the entire game. Some of them crucial ones. And speaking of which, crucial. Down the stretch of the game, because believe it or not, there was a point in this game where the Knicks led by 18. That's right, 18. That had to be like their biggest lead of the series at that point. Uh, it came probably after the second quarter. Uh, the Knicks in the second quarter scored 36 points. Miami scored 23. And this was... A huge flip of the script after they only scored 14 points in the first quarter. I mean, it felt like a freaking 1994 game all over again with a low-scoring defense playing up. But Knicks led big, then out of nowhere, things come and happen where Kyle Lowry is kind of being consistent inside. He's feeding Bam out of bio, and Bam himself had 18 points. Jimmy Butler only had 19 points. He didn't let alone, didn't really ask for the ball a lot, didn't take shots a lot with the ball. Um... He's been kind of, you know, regressing his shot attempts in the late part of this series. And, I mean, he can't be doing everything, though. You're, you, if you're a Heat fan, you would love to see him ask for the ball more in these 30-point games. But, I mean, let's be realistic. It's not like this guy's going to be asking, you know, to be scoring 30 points every single night. Especially in this series, though. I mean, it's not going to be last season. But, I mean, going back on to what I was saying, though, about the bench... I mean, Kyle Lowry, 9 points. Caleb Martin, 11 points. Cody Zeller, 5 points. Duncan Robinson, who, and again, this is a guy who either makes the shot beautifully or he misses by a mile. Like, you straight up see this guy hit the backboard or something. Duncan Robinson had a game. 17 points. He didn't do anything else besides score. He had one rebound and assist. But off of those 17 points, though, we're talking about shooting... 5 and 10 from 3 behind the arc. Impressive stuff. 
They almost really came back in this one. Also, of course, Max Struess was involved with 14 points. I mean, they were, they were cooking something late. But the thing I always find questionable about it, because what they did was hack a Robinson, Mitchell Robinson, who was a poor uh, free throw shooter. They decided to start a fouling like crazy and just figured, hey, if we get this guy to the line, you know, we can slowly build up. He's got to make at least one of four. Mitchell Robinson, his first four three throws was three and four. He got subbed out for Hardenstein just because of it. And Hardenstein, I mean, there was a moment where I think the Knicks were up by four, like a two-possession game. I think it's R.J. Barrett that came in, missed the easy shot. Hardenstein was right below, put it put back dunk. Crucial one to keep the Knicks alive in their lead. You know, at least a comfortable lead. Hardenstein has been a force off the bench, and probably some of that will be an issue for Miami going back to the AAA, which I will call the AAA. I really do not care. But is New York really alive? Are they really going to come back down 3-1? It's possible. I think it's more likely to happen than the Florida Panthers to lose to the Maple Leafs series and through down 3-0, which again, quick shout out to the NHL going on right now with their own playoffs. But I just can't imagine Miami losing in Miami, though. Right? Like, it's got to be an insane game. They had Jalen Brunson play an entire 48 minutes just to keep this Knicks team alive. And a team that was up 18 to keep this Knicks team alive in the fourth quarter to only win by, what, three possessions? Just about three possessions. I won by nine. So what's going to happen with New York? I'm expecting Jalen Brunson again, 48 minutes. Julius Randle needs to get 25. Julius Randle needs to get hot early. R.J. Barrett needs to get hot early. Because R.J. Barrett, who was struggling in Miami in games three and four, that was kind of one of the reasons why they didn't really find anything else. I mean, they got help with Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle time to time. But R.J. Barrett in the second group of New York, they haven't been really efficient throughout this series. I mean, this was a great R.J. Barrett game. But you still have questions off the bench where, you know, is Obi Toppin going to help us out? I mean, Obi, when Julius got hurt in game one, he started. And had a pretty good game there as a starter. But as a bench and role player, we haven't really seen much offense out of him. I mean, besides, you know, some sort of miraculous dunk and taking it inside and have a fake from the corner. But besides that, New York doesn't really have a lot in their bag. But when the ball starts moving, that's when they start getting to it. So Miami... They just got to be able to keep their offense going. But for New York, they need the big three of R.J. Barrett, Randall, and Brunson. And I say big three in the sense of their big three, their big three, to really step up on offense. It's the only way. It's the only way you even keep this game in this series alive for game six. And you move on to game seven and MSG, which will be an insane environment. Again, love Heat Knicks. Love the series history. I mean, Houston game winner in game five that beat out the number one seed Miami back in the 90s. And then you also have Pat Riley. I mean, the Pat Riley series, you see Pat Riley in Madison Square Garden. It's like, you know, he built that franchise in the 90s. And then you have the Miami Heat where he literally built the winning culture of Miami through the teens and 20s now. And I mean, it's just been a really fun series to watch. I hope, and again, this is me hoping. I hope it does continue. I don't believe it's going to continue past Game 6 because I can't imagine Miami losing in Miami. If they do, I think you go back to New York and you got to figure out, like, it's a toss-up by then. But this is going to be a much closer series than a lot of people thought after Game 4.
definitely much closer. For now, let's get away from the the East now. Let's move on to the West. And this is a series I just, again, as a basketball fan, I love this series. What has become Denver Nuggets against the Phoenix Suns. Through two games, you're thinking like Denver's really got it cooking right now. Their death is really showcasing itself against Phoenix. There's no way they can stop them defensively. And then you go to, you know, again, through the first two games, Devin Booker was doing fine. But between that and Jokic and Jamal Murray and the offense and all that, it was hard to even comprehend getting a win in Denver. But now you go to Phoenix, game three and four. Devin Booker, who's been having one of the most efficient, one of the best, and honestly, in my opinion, the best performance in the playoffs so far this year. Second being Jimmy Butler. And third, I would probably have to give it to James Harden. Actually, push James Harden back because he's way too inefficient. Uh, probably even give it out to, you know, I don't know, Jokic. Just because he's been picking up this Denver team on the road. Speaking of which, Booker and Kevin Durant. Two guys without CP3, Chris Paul, one of the best point guards the NBA has seen in recent years. They've really picked up the pace in Phoenix. For example, let's just look at Game 3, right? First game in Phoenix, they end up getting the victory over there in the Valley. uh, Taking 121-114 to over Denver. And you talk about box scores. Jokic had 30. Jamal Murray had 32. It wasn't enough because Kevin Durant, 39 points, one shy of 40. But I guess you get to 40. Devin Booker, book at 47. He made 80% of his shots that day. 20 to 25 from the floor, 5 and 8 from 3, which means a lot of mid-range, a lot of folk, the little weird kind of planking fadeaway that he does where he doesn't even like move his knees as he fades away from the ball which is weird to look at, especially when they have a snapshot with him midair. But he is so efficient, man. So efficient. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're doing anything at 10 o'clock or midnight and there's some West Coast action, you better pray it's going to be Denver against Phoenix because this is a hell of a series, some high-scoring stuff. Game 4 comes along. In Game 4, I mean, Jokic had, I think he had 50. I just want to double-check on this. Oh, 53 points. In a game where Jamal Murray did show up as well right beside him with 28. But the bench did nothing. They got three guys off the bench. And for what reason? Right? They couldn't find anything else. I mean, DeAndre Jordan has been sidelined this entire time. But, you know, Aaron Gordon. Yeah, sure. Put Aaron Gordon out there for 11 points. 50% for the floor. No problem. Michael Porter Jr. Not a goose egg of a game. He got a double-double. 10 rebounds, 11 points. It was pretty, you know, moving around as well with Kevin Durant. But 2-9 and nine from 3. It's just poor shot selection from the overall group of Denver besides Jokic, who picked up this team and almost came back in Game 4. But Phoenix able to get the job done. Kevin Durant, as I mentioned before, with Devin Booker. Both of them actually identical in scoring 36 points. Both of them with double-double. Differently, though. Durant with 11 rebounds. Booker with 12. And they were able to take game four, 129 to 124. Then game five comes. And it's like we're back to normal. We're in Denver. Denver does their job in Denver. 118 points. They ended up having enough to beat out. Phoenix only scored 102 in game five. And this was a game where, besides the second quarter for the Nuggets, 
they really did not struggle at all scoring the basket. They really went through this Phoenix defense like nothing. Uh, you look at the stats. Jokic, 29 points. He ended up having a triple-double um, in this one. 13 rebounds, 12 assists. Michael Porter Jr. actually showed up 19 points, shooting above 60% from the floor. Jamal Murray, eh, 19 points. It's a good game, but something, you know, you expect more a little bit out of him, especially if he's going to be taking more than 15 shots a game. Uh, but off the bench, though, what I thought was really interesting, Bruce Brown, UM grad, 25 points. And this is a guy who's been in situations throughout his entire career in the postseason, whether he was with Brooklyn in 2021 as kind of one of the better options off the bench. He actually even made his way to the starting lineup in some games during that regular season, and of course, in 2022 when they were having issues. But, yeah, the bench actually showed up in the sense of Bruce Brown showed up. Jeff Green had four points. Um, and then I think there was also one more guy, Christian Braun, you know, the rookie. He had five points. He did pretty okay. Only played, like, close to 20 minutes. You know, you're not expecting a lot of him out of him. I mean, I wanted more out of Coldwell Pope, to be honest with you, though. Seven points. One in six from the floor. What are you doing there? Honestly. But overall, though, Denver... Phenomenal victory in Game 5. Now they go back to Phoenix with a potential um, closeout game for the Nuggets. Do they get it done? Not too positive. I mean, there hasn't been a single road win in this series. And I'm not expecting there to be. This is a series that deserves a Game 7. That's how good both of these teams are. I think whoever makes it out of this series will represent the West in the NBA Finals. I don't think there's a question about it. And speaking of which, let's look at the competition for either of those teams that they do make it being that of the Golden State Warriors or the Los Angeles Lakers. And their series, I mean, actually, as mentioned before early in this podcast, I started everything when they were in the second quarter. It's now two minutes left in this game. Golden State up 114-100. I don't think the Lakers are coming back, so that's why I kind of started off. It's like getting, like, basically midway past midnight. We're, like, 12, 26 a.m. It's now, like, the 11th of May. Um, but this series has been really weird, though. I mean, I don't even know what to really make of it. I mean, besides the AD game in Game 1, you have two blowouts for each side. The Game 4 comes around. It's like, it's neck and neck. But the Golden State Warriors had a, you know, a majority of the time, they were right there next to the Lakers, who were leading sometimes, you know, and then started to leave the game away in the fourth quarter, thanks to, you know, Lonnie Walker, the fourth, who UM guy again. Another shout-out to you, um, guy. But 15 points alone in the fourth quarter. And if you know his story, I mean, you just know that he's been dealing with a lot of things with him personally. So for him to, from this season at least, you know, battle for minutes off the Lakers bench and then finally get some big-time minutes in Game 4. And basically, one of the... Again, this is a close game against Golden State for either a 3-1 or a 2-2 you know, series. The Lakers able to get the job done with Lonnie Walker, who had 15 points in that fourth quarter alone. It was enough to edge out the Golden State Warriors and the Lakers winning it 104 to 101 uh, for that game. But now I'm looking at this game five. You think that after game four, it's going to be another performance. Very close, though. No. Golden State, right now, up 114 to 100 as mentioned before with two minutes remaining i'm pretty sure it's gonna remain a double digit win 
uh, for Golden State as they'll probably still be trailing in the series 3-2 now. But just looking at the stats, the Lakers starting five, they've been on the floor the majority of this game, more than 30 minutes all around besides Vanderbilt. Uh, Anthony Davis, 23 points. LeBron James, 25. Um, They're probably going to finish with a double-double by the end of this one. Each one is like a rebound short of that. Austin Reeves, D'Angelo Russell. And Russell, he's like been on and off in this series, but this is actually a really good D-low game. Um, So far, shooting just about 60%, actually a perfect 6-10. But then you look at the bench besides Schroeder. Like Rui Hachimura, he was phenomenal the first round. In the first two or so games, it was like the Ben's best player. Probably the only bench player that you really, you know, be an outlier for the Lakers team starting off this series. And he's kind of fallen off in the past two games. I haven't seen much out of him. So, and Lonnie Walker, you know, as I mentioned before, 15 points in the fourth quarter of the last game. He's, able to, he's not even able to breach anything. Of 10 points. He ended up finishing off 4 points. In close to 30 minutes of play. Which is pretty phenomenal off the bench. He played 20 minutes and 19 seconds to be exact. This is a weird series. And the weirdest thing about it. Because I don't know who the Instagram account is. Or whatever. But there's like this Corgi. That's apparently has been like. You know he hits the ball on top of his nose. And the ball bounces into one of the baskets. Of either a Golden State or a Lakers basket. To determine the series. The Corgi is. And as this game stands. It looks like Golden State is going to win. Right now it's 50 seconds remaining. Warriors up 121 to 105. I'm not. like The Corgi is going to be 5-0 and in this series. The Corgi expected the Lakers to be up 3-1. The Corgi also expects. The Warriors to come back down 3-1. This is a weird series. This is as weird as last year with the Eastern Conference Finals when you have the Heat blowing out the Celtics and then the next game the Celtics blowing out the Heat until it was Game 7 really close. I, I I really don't understand this series. And from the looks of it, I mean, is it going to finish in Los Angeles? I think so. I think we're going to go to Game 6. I, I don't believe a Corgi is going to be able to tell the future. I don't think anybody should, especially not a dog. But man, it's like, I mean, anything could happen in this series. Anything. Like, LeBron's been phenomenal. I think Anthony Davis has been kind of the main piece of this series where you need him to get 30 points and kind of, you know, elevate his game inside. While defensively, this Lakers team has done pretty good in some games where they're holding Golden State to, I mean, at least the big two of Golden State being that of Klay Thompson who has been shooting poor shot selection throughout this entire series, which I don't really understand. Um, but I think one thing from this series, like, and probably the last thing I say on this podcast because it's getting really late. I was getting a little bit tired. I had like peanuts and water earlier, which is kind of messing up my throat up. Um, but Jordan Poole, his minutes. Throughout the last three games prior to game five, uh, people were talking about them. I believe also Steve Kerr was talking about basically, you know, minimizing his playing time because of his performance. I think Jordan Poole, similar to Julius Randle, a player that when it gets tough, he doesn't move the ball around for his teammates, doesn't really like do anything. You know, 
he just isn't a type of player where, you know, if he stays hot, he stays hot. He's inconsistent. You know, that's just the nature of the beast, though, in basketball. Um, but Jordan Poole, in today's game, um, actually wore just 121 to 106 over the Lakers. Jordan Poole, 11 points, 5 and 14 shooting. And the majority of the shots I saw him, terrible shot selections, just right off the bat, weird in the the wings, long shots. He was 1-6 from 3, I think. It's it, it's really bad. I, I really hate this Warriors team this year. Last year, they looked phenomenal, especially with Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins has been phenomenal, too. I think, and again, as mentioned before in the podcast that I did of last year's NBA Finals, he was the reason why they won the NBA Finals, besides Curry obviously having an offensive performance like no other. Uh, but there has to be that second player where they just push the envelope for the team. And throughout this series, I just don't see a player like that. The only player I see like that would probably be, as I mentioned before, all the time, like a broken record, Anthony Davis. You know? I mean, if Anthony Davis is having a good game, the Lakers are winning. That's a guarantee. There's no way Anthony Davis scores 35 or 30 points or whatever in a game and they lose. There's no way. So this is a series that, you know, I can't put my hat on it. I mean, a lot of these teams are just throwing up shots and the defense is... It's a momentum switch series. That's the only way I can really describe it. It's weird. I mean, Curry had 27 points and he looked, you know, looked average. Which is, again, it's Stephen Curry. He's bound to take 30-plus shots a game. But with that, I'm thinking I'm going to end the podcast here. I think I kind of went past my spill pretty late in the night. But we'll have this ready to go and edited in the morning. Uh, I want to thank everyone again for if you have tuned in this late with me uh, into the podcast for uh, checking in on the podcast. But of course, I'll be back with more episodes deep into the playoffs. And I always appreciate you for joining Courtside.